This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, would you grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts? Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to be for our preaching time today. In just a moment, I'll begin reading from verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 12. I'd like to ask you today, as we prepare to engage uh, with this passage, uh, by the way, if you brought your own Bible, then that's great. Uh, You can certainly use that. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this and a seat back nearby. And if you're looking for Acts chapter 13, you're looking for page 866, 866. We're going to read a passage today. In Acts 13, verse 1 to 12, that is, well, quite frankly, this week it was difficult to figure out how to preach through this passage. Uh, the, the sense of what the main idea is that Luke is conveying here shifted on me a little bit as I studied it throughout this week. I, I came to the table thinking I was going to observe one thing, and I certainly observed that, but there was something underneath that that was more significant that I think Luke was doing here Uh, that became more and more apparent as I studied it more deeply. And uh, this passage, uh, I think I understand. But Luke is tapping into something here uh, that is such such a deep and profound reality in all of the Bible that it's hard to know where to where to go in a preaching message on uh, this passage. There's so much that's underneath and in between and sort of assumed on the part of the reader uh, that it is, uh, I feel as though we need to start off with a, with a whole class in order to get to Acts chapter 13. We don't have time for that. Uh, I'm not going to try to fit all that into our uh, brief preaching time here this morning. So you can take a deep breath. Uh, I'll still aim for my, my normal preaching time, which may or may not be very long to some of you in the room. But as we, as we go through Acts chapter 13, verses one to 12, I'd like you to consider, uh, these at least are some of the questions I think that are addressed uh, here in in our passage. Why is it that some people hear the gospel and believe it, while other people do not? Now, maybe the folks who don't believe the gospel don't come right out and say, I don't believe that. Uh, Maybe they just are indifferent to it. Maybe they just keep living as though God doesn't really exist, or at least that God isn't going to judge me. But in any case, their response is one that, you know, I don't really believe that, whether they say that out loud or not. Why do some people believe the gospel and live according to, or at least aim to live according to, what they now believe to be true, and others hear the gospel and reject it? Why is that so? Why do some people hear the gospel and over time, hearing it again and again, or having the truths of the gospel bounce around in their head, Why do some people seem to soften to the message of the gospel over time while others hear the message of the gospel and maybe again and again come into conversations with others about the gospel and they seem to get harder and harder and harder against it to such a degree that eventually they say, hey, I just want to talk about that Jesus stuff anymore. I'm all done talking religion with you. Don't bring up the Bible anymore. Why is that true? Why does that happen? Well, in today's passage, we're going to see 
God judge one sinner and God save another. This passage is just a small portion of the narrative, the historical narrative that Luke compiled in order to tell the story of God's unfolding plan of salvation. So Acts 13, 1 to 12 is just a small portion of this whole book of Acts, which Luke has compiled as a, a sort of unfolding of what happened after the life and death and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. What happened with God's people in the world? What happened with God's plan of redemption? Did God save? Did he redeem? Is he doing that still? Did, did all that stuff he said before in the Old Testament, is it still true? And if so, what do we do with what we see in front of our eyes? We've already looked at a little bit of this with regard to the Jew-Gentile relationship that's unfolding in the book of Acts, which is going to come even to a more heated fever pitch in just a couple of chapters from where we are here in Acts chapter 13. But in, in Acts chapter 13, there is both an illustration, that's our text today, and an explanation, that's verses 13 to 52, which we'll get to at another on another Sunday, of God's explicit judgment of Israel. And it is through that judgment that the New Testament clear, clears up for us, tells us, teaches us repeatedly. It's through that judgment that God brought about the salvation of a great multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. As I said, this is one of those profound truths of the Bible that you just can't get in one sitting. It's like one of those iceberg passages where you can, you can see a bit of the iceberg on the surface there. But if you look hard enough, you realize there's a whole continent of substance underneath the water. Uh, I want to say up front that most Sundays I feel that there is much more within and under and beside the text than we can possibly consider at any one time. But this is especially true today. So you should you should think of Sunday sermons, uh, a good portion of them, at least not to be conversation resolutions. In other words, Mark's going to answer all your or whoever's preaching up here on a Sunday, going to answer all the questions you had about that passage. Uh, that is not what sermons are intended to be. Now, Lord willing, some of the questions that you have will be addressed and there will be some resolution and we'll hear what God would have us to hear and understand and try to apply to our lives. Well, uh, that certainly is the aim of, of a sermon. But there's also a sense in which a sermon should be a conversation starter. Hey, what would you think whenever he said that? Uh, what would you think about that idea that, that he brought out of the, uh, you know, the Old Testament attaching to the new and the way they they uh, relate to one another? Uh, where did he get that from the text? Did you see that there? Uh, all these are ways you could see the sermon as a conversation starter. Well, with all this sort of hodgepodge, uh, uh, hodgepodge of introduction, let's turn our attention now uh, to Acts chapter 13. And let's read about this first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, uh, whose name is still Saul, up to the point of our passage this morning. Uh, and, and what happens with all of that there? One of the ways that we try to show respect for God's word is we stand while we read the primary passage. Would you mind standing with me as I read from Acts chapter 13 and as I said, read down through verse 12. Now there were in the church at Antioch, Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping or ministering to or serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John, that is John Mark, to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can be seated. Uh, the main point that I think Luke would intend, has intended by including this passage in the unfolding of the book of Acts is uh, hopefully one that's been on the screen behind me for a little while. It's also in the bulletin on the right-hand side, inside flap of your bulletin, if you like to take notes and want to keep that down. The main point that I'm drawing out today, which I believe is the main point intended, is that God judges and saves through the person and work of Jesus Christ, triumphing over all opposition, and the gospel announces both. That is both judgment and salvation. The gospel announces both. Uh, let's just dive right in and we'll start off with point number one, basically just walking through the passage. I'll start in verse one and Lord willing, we'll end in verse 12. Uh, looking at the first three verses, let's consider this idea of church leaders being sent out. So this is point number one, looking especially at verses one to three. Verse one tells us that there were prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Well, Luke has already shown the reader that both Barnabas and Saul made teaching their main duty in planting the church there in Antioch and also in discipling the Christians there. That was in uh, Acts chapter uh, chapter 12, uh, I believe. Is it 12 or 11? I have 11 on my notes, but I'm, I'm thinking 12. Somebody tell me. It's going to bug me if I, I can't just keep going. Is it 12 where the church at Antioch is planted? 11? Okay, my notes are right. Thank you. Thanks for helping me with that. Yeah, so ch chapter 11 of Acts is where the church in Antioch is planted. And uh, Luke makes clear that Barnabas and Saul are teaching. Uh, that is a major emphasis of what they're doing there. So this idea of prophets and teachers, uh, Barnabas and Saul are already shown to be teachers among Christians, the church there in Antioch. And the word prophet, at least in the broadest sense, has merely the idea of someone who, who speaks the word of God. Uh, that's the broadest sense of the term. Someone who speaks authoritatively God's word. 
Now, certainly there were prophets who spoke divine revelation, even telling the future during the time of the apostles. And of course, at various points throughout the Old Testament. So there can be that narrow understanding of prophet, someone who uh, speaks some special revelation from God. They have information that no one else has. Uh, Or in a broad sense, it can simply mean someone who speaks the word of God. Uh, But I think what Luke is telling us here is he's essentially using these words, prophets and teachers, to talk talk about the leadership that's there in the church in Antioch. Uh, These are the leaders. And of course, speaking the word of God and teaching people to live in accordance with it These are the responsibilities of church leaders all throughout the New Testament. Uh, The New Testament later refers to these as pastors, elders, overseers. Uh, But nevertheless, I think Luke is pointing to these church leaders there. And notice also in verse 1, the the diversity of the leadership that's there in Antioch. You might not catch this at first glance, but if you look at it a little bit more closely, you see see Barnabas' name there. Well, he was a, a Jewish man, a son of encouragement, we first met in Acts chapter 4, who was uh, one of the first ones who was uh, mentioned as as selling his property in order to benefit, to to help uh, other Christians, other church members in need. He was also one who knew Saul, who knew Paul since uh, Paul's or Saul's earliest days as a Christian. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. So that was Barnabas. Then there was this person named Simeon, who was also called Niger, Luke says, which means the word Niger means black or dark. Uh, This was very likely a reference to the color of his skin, which would probably mean that Simeon was from uh, from Africa. He was probably an African. Then there was Lucius, who was from Cyrene, which is modern Libya, North Africa, uh, and had an Arab culture and language. Uh, Lucius may well have been Uh, one of those men of Cyprus and Cyrene who first brought the gospel to Antioch back there in Acts chapter 11. Uh, Then there's this person named Menaean, who was a lifelong friend or childhood friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This was the Herod Antipas, the uncle of the Herod that we just read about dying in Acts chapter 12. And this probably means that Menaean was at least somewhat wealthy and powerful in the Roman world, something of like in modern terms, we might call an aristocrat. And then finally, there was Saul. Saul was a Jew's Jew. He was a Pharisee who gave his whole life to serving God with full devotion. Saul had a personal encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, who commissioned him to evangelistic ministry among the Gentiles. You can read about that in Acts chapter nine. And Saul was the kind of man who immediately after his conversion, began proclaiming Jesus as the Christ, saying he is the son of God in the synagogues. Uh, so uh, Paul, Saul was, was no um, non-confrontational guy. Uh, he was willing to put it all on the line and right away. This interesting group here that, that Luke mentions among the prophets and teachers, the leaders there in Antioch. This is a diverse group. And some of these leaders then were sent out. So verse 2 tells us that while the church was worshiping or ministering to or serving the Lord, the Holy Spirit spoke a word to them, probably through one of the prophets, teachers that were just mentioned in verse 1. The divine word that the Holy Spirit spoke was a calling to gospel ministry elsewhere. So in verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then we read in verse 3 that it was the church 
or the congregation of Christians there in Antioch, who prayed for them, Barnabas and Saul, who laid their hands on them, Barnabas and Saul, this sort of commissioning gesture, and who sent them off. That's in verse 3. Let me take just a second to demystify something that people speak much more in like superstitious, mysterious terms today rather than biblical terms. This idea of calling or commissioning. So you might just ask yourself, who sent Barnabas and Saul out from the church in Antioch? Was it the Holy Spirit who sent them out? Or was it the church, the congregation who sent them out? Well, if you're sharp and paying attention, then you'll answer yes, is the answer to the question. Yes. Yes, the Holy Spirit sent them out. And yes, the church sent them out. Both are true at the same time. You might also think to yourself, well, how about, uh, how was God's calling on Barnabas and Saul? How was that announced? How was that clarified? Was it a feeling that Barnabas had one night while he was praying all by himself? Did Saul tell everybody one Sunday that he and Barnabas were being called by God to another church or another ministry? No, that's not how it went down at all. The calling of God was public. It was clear to the whole church. It was affirmed by the whole church as this whole church was sending out, participating in the God call on the lives of Saul and Barnabas. Now, this is not to say I'm not arguing that Every church member and every church pastor can never do anything apart from the affirmation of the whole church family. I'm not saying that. But it is to say that we ought not to throw around phrases like the Lord is calling me. When what we really mean is I want to do this. I want to go there. Let's not any one of us presume to speak for God. Let's let him speak for himself. And let's us do our best to live according to the principles and the instructions that he's laid out for us in his word. So if we think that we ought to do this thing or that thing, you or I, let's not use the trump card. The Lord is calling me. That's a conversation stopper. Who can argue with that? We don't want to blame God for our foolish decisions. So we shouldn't tell everybody else. This is what the Lord would have me do. And really, it's just what I want to do. And we can actually benefit from the sort of messy and odd conversations we might have with one another as we try to figure out what would God have me do in my life when we don't throw down this trump card to stop all further conversation. At any rate, uh, Paul and, excuse me, Saul and Barnabas, uh, two of Antioch's best, no doubt, were sent out for ministry away from Antioch so that others might hear and believe the gospel And so that others might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ among new churches planted elsewhere. And before we move on to point number two, let me just really quickly uh, mention this as, as we'll unfold further as the passage moves along. But notice here where from where is the first the first official missionary effort coming? Uh, What's what's the origin of it? What church is sending out these first formal missionaries? Who is God calling to go and do missions elsewhere? What church is that located in? Is it the church in Jerusalem? No. It's the church in Antioch. And why is that significant? Well, because Antioch is the first Gentile, predominantly Gentile church in the New Testament. 
So it's not from Jerusalem. The, the heart of all of God's revelation up to that point, the, the, the central focus of God's dealing with humanity through a particular people, but rather it's from a mutt church with a diverse set of leaders who are all believing the gospel, who are wanting to see the gospel expand. It is as though Luke is emphasizing the failure on the part of first century Jews to be the witnesses in the world that God had commissioned them to be. After all, it was Israel who was supposed to be a nation or a people through whom the whole world would be blessed. This was God's promise to Abraham in Acts chapter 12, I mean, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 12. Now, indeed, the whole world was blessed through the offspring of Abraham. But that offspring through whom the blessing came was not Israel, it was Christ. And this is the teaching clearly of the New Testament. And I think the teaching of our passage here this morning. Uh, Let's now consider what these first commission missionaries did. What is the missionary task and what might we be able to learn from their example? So point number two, Christian missionaries. These Christian missionaries were sent out from Antioch. Saul and Barnabas went on this traveling expedition in order to proclaim the gospel. And they began, we're told, in the synagogues of the Jews. So verse 4 tells us that Saul and Barnabas traveled down to Seleucia, which was a port city just west of Antioch. And from there, they sailed across the sea about 60 miles away to a big island uh, called Cyprus. Cyprus was Barnabas's home. We learn about that in Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And there had been a gospel witness there already. Luke told us in chapter 11 that those who were scattered from Jerusalem because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, that those guys traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. That's Acts chapter 11, verse 19. But Luke tells us in that very same passage that these who traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews, except this crazy bunch that finally landed in Antioch. And they extended the gospel even to the Gentiles, the very Gentile converts that are now sending out Saul and Barnabas. Now, Saul and Barnabas's gospel ministry in Cyprus started with the Jews, but they fully intended to cast a wider net even among the Gentiles there in Cyprus. Verse 5 tells us that they, they arrived first at Salamis, which is on the, the eastern coast. So if, I, if you're looking at it on the map from your side, on the eastern coast of Cyprus. And that, that's where they began the missionary work. They'll end on the other side of the island, but they started when they first landed. And there are two important things, I think, to, to note here. First, Luke tells us almost nothing about Saul and Barnabas's ministry in all of Cyprus. This short passage tells us almost nothing about all of their ministry through the whole island, verse 6 says, of what they were doing. Except the one thing he does tell us about their ministry is in there in verse 5, that they started preaching in the synagogues of the Jews. Now, this was Saul's method of operation. This he continues all the way throughout his missionary journeys that we'll see in the book of Acts. He preached first to the Jews in the synagogues, which sometimes also included some Greeks who were present. And then he preached to the Gentiles everywhere else. 
But this pattern also displays throughout the Gospels and Acts a constant refrain of the gospel coming first to Israel, Israel's rejection of that, and then the gospel bouncing elsewhere. This is the constant pattern that we see unfold. The second thing I want to highlight here is that the missionary efforts, according to the Bible, are definitionally focused on gospel proclamation and teaching. This is what Saul and Barnabas were doing. They were proclaiming the gospel. This is what mission, missionary efforts are. So Christian missions is word work. And what did Saul and Barnabas do when they arrived in Salamis? They were told in verse 5, proclaimed the word of God. What did they do when they went all the way to the other side of the island to Paphos? Well, verses 7 and 12 both tell us they taught the word of God. What did they do later when they entered Iconium in Acts chapter 14? Verses 1 to 3, they spoke the word of Christ's grace. And what did they do when they came to Perga in Acts chapter 14? They spoke the word to them, we're told. The strong implication is that Saul and Barnabas preached the gospel and reasoned from the scriptures and called sinners to repent and believe at every town along the way until they came all the way back to Antioch after this first journey, where they had been commended by the grace of God for the work that they had then fulfilled. Mission accomplished on this missionary effort. And what was the mission? To preach and teach the gospel at every town along the way. Brothers and sisters, this is how we must understand all Christian missions and missionaries and mission agencies and mission budgets. We must not think of every Christian group or organization as a missionary. That doesn't mean that every other Christian mission, uh, Christian group that's not explicitly missions minded, word minded, uh, word centered, uh, teaching focused is bad. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying that's not biblically missions. Missions is word work. Missionaries in the technical sense are those who cross cultural and or uh, language barriers for the sake of preaching and teaching the gospel. So, brothers and sisters, again, we must not confuse the good things that Christians can do with the good news that Christians must preach. These are different categories. This is true of our personal and corporate missions efforts. Some of our church members, Lord willing, over the years will be missionaries. But only those who are skilled preachers and or teachers of the gospel, not merely do-gooders or those who want to be eager world travelers. We must, as a church, prioritize our own missions efforts, aiming always to preach and teach the gospel, not merely to create social programs or to do community projects. Again, those things aren't bad, but that's not missions. This is true of our personal and corporate missions giving. So not only of our efforts, how should we personally think about uh, one of us in this room, maybe being a missionary? How should we think about that calling and that effort? How should we think about as a church sending out one of our own to be a missionary elsewhere? We should let the scriptures instruct us. Now I'm talking about how should we think about our budget? Uh, the, the, sort of, the sort of efforts, the missional efforts that we give to. How should this inform that? Well, we must prioritize giving to those individuals and churches and ministries whose primary goal is far and away to preach the gospel, to preach and teach the Bible, 
Now, my family or yours can certainly and may certainly give of our resources to foster and adoptive care families, to food and housing programs for those in need, for social and economic advancement uh, programs for families that are near the poverty line. But we must not think of these things as missions. It's something else. This is also true of our personal evangelism. We must not only live lives of virtue and sincerity, but if we're to be missional as Christians, we have to open our mouths and preach and teach the gospel. As Max Stiles puts it in his little book on evangelism, to teach the gospel with the aim to persuade. We want to persuade those who do not yet believe or follow Jesus. We want to persuade them to turn from their sin and to put their trust and confidence in the only Savior. And this is what it means to be missional or to do missions. This is true of our church calendar. We must avoid spending our church time on a thousand good things so that we can ensure that we are spending our time on those things which we cannot fail to do. We must be about word work. This is the Christian mission in the world. Now, again, please hear me. I'm not saying that disaster relief or building projects or food pantries or a whole host of other good works are bad. I'm not saying they're bad. But I am saying that word work is every local church's unique mission in the world. And I think that everything else can generally be done as Christians just live like Christians in the world. Luke is clear in our passage that Saul and Barnabas went about Cyprus proclaiming the word of God. But Luke slows the whole story down big time when we get to Paphos. And let's see how the word of God was received there. And let's consider why Luke has told the story in this way. So point number three, this demonic opposition. Now, I told you at the first of this whole thing that I really kind of had an idea in my head about what this passage was doing at the beginning of the week. And then as the week progressed and as I was studying the passage a bit more, I realized, oh, there's more to this than that. I thought this was really kind of the main point, this demonic opposition. Look, God's word is powerful, even over demonic forces. And that's certainly true. That's certainly in the passage. But let's see how Luke is using this as a sort of illustration of something far more profound than merely God's word is triumphant even over demonic powers. Luke focuses on this person that we learn whose name is Elimus. Verse 6 says, when they, that is Saul and Barnabas and John Mark also, who's tagging along with them, had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, I'm still reading verse 6, they came upon a certain magician or sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, Luke tells us all about this guy. He's told us almost nothing about all of Saul and Barnabas' missions, efforts on Cyprus up to this point. And now he's like, let me tell you everything there is to know about Elimus. Well, what do we learn about Elimus? His lineage, his profession, his opposition to the gospel. Well, uh, verse 6 tells us that Elimus was a certain magician who was with the proconsul, uh, which is something like the governor of this uh, island, Cyprus, underneath the Roman emperor's rule. Now, the Greek word that's translated there as magician in the ESV or wise man in another translation or conjurer, the idea is someone who, who knows secret things 
who knows wisdom that nobody else has, who knows the future like nobody else does, who can read dreams like nobody else can. Often by supposedly consulting with the dead, which is in the old term uh, referred to as necromancy. So in your mind, you might think of someone like Wormtongue from Lord of the Rings or Jafar from Aladdin or maybe Merlin from the story of King Arthur. I think of someone like this, sorcerer beside the king, advisor to the king, but in this case is, has malicious uh, uh, plans, designs on the king. That's who Elimus is. I think Jafar is a great analogy. This sort of thing, this conjuring, this sorcery, this necromancy was explicitly forbidden under the Mosaic Covenant. Leviticus 19, 20, many other places. And the penalty uh, was death and covenantal cursing for God's people. In short, sorcery and reading omens and telling fortunes is what pagans did. That's not what God's people do. But that's who Elimus is. He's that kind of guy. Elimus, we're also told in verse 6, was a false prophet. Now, this adds to the kind of picture that we've already gotten, but it makes Elimus even worse. Luke seems to be telling us that Elimus not only promoted pagan superstition, but that Elimus did it in the name of God. Yahweh, the God of the Bible. He's a false prophet. A Jewish false prophet. Incidentally, this is what Israel's and Judah's kings and prophets notoriously did throughout the Old Testament and right into the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Only on very rare occasions did any Jewish leader in the Old Testament promote the outright worship of a false god. But very often they would promote unbiblical practices and pagan ceremonies and false prophecies as actions in service to Yahweh. We're worshiping God, they would say. But they would do it in ways that were forbidden by the very God they were claiming to worship. Verse 8 gives Elimus uh, as, as the name of this man, but verse 6 tells us that his name was Bar-Jesus. Well, this again gives us some information about who this Elimus was. The prefix Bar simply means son of. Uh, so he was Elimus, son of Jesus, son of Joshua. Jesus or Joshua, these, uh, this name was very common uh, in the days of uh, Jesus Christ's earthly life and ministry. But it's interesting that Elimus was the very son of someone named Joshua or Jesus or Yeshua. This means God saves. The Lord is our salvation, as we just sang. So Elimus was not only a false Jewish prophet practicing pagan magic arts, but he was also the son of a Jewish father named the Lord Saves. And Elimus is the arch nemesis of the gospel in this passage and of Christ and of the word of God. Verse 7 and 8, Luke tells us Sergius Paulus, this, this proconsul summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But verse 8, but Elimus opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. It'll become even 
clearer in just a bit. But Elimus is Luke's focus in this passage precisely because Elimus personally embodies the posture of all Israel toward God at the very time in history when God was sending the Messiah and the salvation that he'd been promising for so long. Elimus is a picture. He's the very embodiment of the people of Israel during this day. Continuing on with this focus on Elimus, we don't want to look at this situation and think, oh my goodness, Elimus was terrible. Now that's definitely true. But we had better not stand in judgment over Elimus just yet. Nor should we be arrogant Gentiles who look at those first century Jews and say, look how terrible those Jews were. No, this passage is clear that the Jewish opposition to the gospel, which Elimus embodies here in this passage, is only an outgrowth of the greater demonic opposition to God in the world. Opposition to God and to Christ in the world is not merely a matter of culture or age or intelligence or the lack of any of that stuff. Every son and daughter of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve is susceptible to the kind of deceit and villainy which Elimus embodies here. Because it's demonic. And we are all, as fallen, sinful humans, naturally inclined toward evil and wickedness. This is our natural inclination. We are naturally inclined toward selfish ambition and self-promoting lies and anti-authority lawlessness and God-hating rebellion. This is mine and your natural state. Ephesians 2 says the natural state of fallen humanity is to be dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse 1. To be walking in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Think demonic power. Verse 2. And to be, verse 3, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that the summary of all this is that we are naturally children of wrath and not naturally children of God. This is the natural state of all humanity. And so we had better not sit in judgment over Elimus. Rather, we should recognize this is every one of us apart from God's grace. But if Elimus represents the state of Jewish rejection of the gospel up to that point in human history, and if all people in the world are, after Genesis 3, naturally just as hostile to the word of God, then how does anyone come to hear and believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What does God do with rebellious sinners who hear the truth of his word and remain openly opposed to it? And how should those who do believe feel about their reception of grace, even as others around them remain blind to the very beauty of Christ and hostile to the only God who can save? Well, this leads us into point number four, as we'll see both of these trajectories unfold. Point number four, stricken in judgment. Elimus is stricken by God's judgment. It's no coincidence, just in passing, 
that Luke first began to use the name Paul in this passage. In verse 9 of all places. Verse 9 is sort of a pivotal turn. Saul was his Hebrew name, Paulus, his Latin or Roman name, and Paul, his Greek name. And Saul Paul was uniquely commissioned by Christ as an apostle to the Gentiles, which predominantly spoke Greek in the known world of the first century. So this passage is a passage of transition from Jew to Gentile. Not just for Saul Paul, but for the gospel mission and expansion in the world. And so this shift in Paul's name, where Luke calls him Paul from now on and not Saul, again, is no coincidence. So what did God do with Elimus and how did this represent God's judgment of all Israel at that time? Mark, aren't you reading into that? Elimus is just one guy. Well, let me build my case. First off, I want to point to the divine judgment that comes to Elimus. Uh, Paul was doing the talking, but Luke is clear that he was filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 9. When he said what he did. So the judgment is coming from Paul's lips. But it is God himself who is speaking. And it's backed up by physical consequences that we see in the passage. So Paul and the Holy Spirit judged Elimus in verse 10. As a son of the devil. An enemy of all righteousness. And one who was full of all deceit and villainy. Friends, this passage, this particular verse even, teaches us, it reminds us that there is no neutral position in the world. Paul is preaching the gospel and calling sinners to repent. And anyone who neglected or opposed that message is not in some sort of neutral setting, but is a child of Satan. And of course, this all echoes Jesus' own judgments against the Jewish leaders who opposed him during his earthly ministry. What did Jesus say to his opponents in John chapter 8? He says, you guys can't hear my word because you're not from God. They said, well, our father is Abraham. And Jesus says, if you, if you were of, of Abraham, then you would listen to me. Abraham heard me. Uh, Abraham heard of me and rejoiced. What does Jesus say about them? Your father isn't God. Your father isn't Abraham. Your father, he said in John chapter 8, verse 44, is the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Think of the way Jesus spoke both in lament and judgment over Israel. A whole crowd of Jews. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. And stones who are sent to it. This is not some default posture. It's some neutral a default setting. This is opposition. Jesus says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood, but you were not willing. You opposed the very salvation offered out. And so judgment came. Jesus closed that phrase there, that, that, that uh, statement by saying, behold, your house is left to you desolate. Because you did this, because you responded in this way, judgment, woe, cursing is now yours. And this is exactly the kind of language that Paul proceeded to use as he continued to spell out 
not only divine, but specifically covenantal judgment against Elimus. Remember, I was telling you there's so much, the, the iceberg is deep here, but come along with me as we consider this covenantal judgment. Paul invokes two specific Old Testament forms of judgment in this passage. One, quoting previous covenantal judgment to those presently doing the same, and two, applying covenantal curses, either figuratively or concretely right now, to those who violate the covenant. So he he calls covenantal curses down on someone who's in the midst of of him, who's right in front of him now, doing the very things that these covenantal curses were warning against. So this quoting of covenantal judgment happens in verse 10. At the end of verse 10 in Acts chapter 13, Paul told Elimus, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? This is a direct quotation, citation from Micah chapter 3. Specifically verse 9. This was a judgment, a warning of judgment from Micah, who is a prophet to Judah uh, during a time of prosperity where they're turning away from God. And Micah is warning them. And here's his warning. Hear this, Micah chapter 3 verses 9 uh, down and through about 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. Your heads, your leaders, give judgment for a bribe. Your priests teach for a price. Your prophets practice divination, sorcery, enchantment. The very thing Elimus was doing in our passage. Your prophets practice divination for money. Yet you lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? Isn't God on our side? No disaster shall come upon us. Micah chapter 3 verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion, Jerusalem, God's city, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. If you do this, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. And Paul is bringing this Old Testament warning and he's throwing it down right in front of Elimus in this very moment. Elimus, you're being just like the people of Israel in the past and judgment is coming upon you. Then in verse 11, Paul cursed Elimus with a sort of physical marking which symbolized greater spiritual realities. What was the physical consequence for Elimus? It was blindness and darkness. Near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, God finished describing all the blessings his people would enjoy in their new land if they obeyed. And God then turned to warning them of the curses that they would endure if they disobeyed. If you obey the blessings, if you obey, then blessings will come. But, God said through Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Deuteronomy 28, 29, uh, 28, 28 and 29, among the curses listed, the Lord, this is Moses again speaking, 
from God to the people of Israel, giving warning, uh, uh, promises of blessing if they obey, warnings of cursing if they disobey. Here's what's going to happen if you disobey. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. What's going to happen if you disobey? Blindness is going to come. Now, make no mistake, this was a real judgment that Paul called down on Elimus. He really did lose his sight, at least for a time. But this was also a visible and physical depiction of the greater spiritual blindness, the inability to see what should have been plain, and spiritual darkness, a lack of understanding concerning the most fundamental truths which God had revealed in his word. And this seemed to overwhelm the people of Israel during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry and during the time of the apostles. Now, as I've said, we ought not point back to them and say, look how terrible they were. Look how blind and dark they were. Because as I've already told us from the scriptures, spiritual blindness is the natural default setting for everyone who is a son or daughter of fallen Adam and Eve. One more quick thing before we move on to point number five, this representative judgment. So Elimus is is sort of a stand-in. In the same way that Elimus is opposing the gospel, so too all of Israel is opposing the gospel. And in the same way that Elimus is stricken with blindness and darkness, so too, in a general sense, Israel is stricken with blindness and darkness. Now, in the storyline of Acts, Luke has included this episode, I believe, and the bit that follows it, as we'll see when we get to the rest of Acts chapter 13, to show the reader that God was simultaneously extending the gospel of grace to the Gentiles. Those who had previously been blind and dark, they didn't have the word of God revealed to them. Only the descendants of Abraham did. God was simultaneously extending the gospel of grace to the Gentiles and condemning the Jews for their rejection of that very same gospel. In a sense, as I've said, Elimus stands in as a representative of all Israel. Now, what a devastating reality. God brought his judgment upon those who rejected his word, those who murdered his prophets, those who opposed his plans in the world. And what a joyful reality for those who hear and believe the gospel. It's both of those at the same time. At the same time, God was judging those who opposed him and graciously rescuing those who would hear and believe. Now, having taken a hard look at God's judgment against a demonically aligned sinner, let's now turn to the last verse of our passage, just one, in order to see God's mercy and grace on full display. Point number five, stricken by grace. Verse 12 tells us simply that the proconsul believed. It it sort of ends abruptly, I think, this whole passage. There's such detail given about Elimus and the judgment that comes upon him. And all we hear about the proconsul is he believed. All done. Luke doesn't tell us about Paul's message to Sergius Paulus. He doesn't tell us exactly what he preached But we can assume that he preached the same sort of gospel that had been 
from the mouths of all the evangelists throughout the book of Acts up to that point, that God is the creator. Humanity is sinful and worthy of God's judgment. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the divine King and Savior of all who repent and believe. And now today, God calls everyone everywhere to repent, to turn from sin, and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This is the way the gospel is proclaimed throughout the book of Acts. This is the way Christians have proclaimed the gospel throughout the centuries. That Jesus is the true king. That he will return one day and judge all sinners everywhere. And that only those who come to him in repentance and faith, that is turning from sin and clinging to his promise of forgiveness because of what he's done for us at the cross, only those will be spared from the judgment that we deserve. So look, friend, if you're here this morning and you hear nothing else about what I've said today, hear that core message of what the gospel is. This is what Paul was proclaiming. This is the central theme of the book of Acts. This is the central theme of all the book, all of the books of the Bible. This is the central theme of all Christianity. Jesus is king and he's the judge. And anyone who looks to him, who trusts in him, who turns from sin and clings tightly to Jesus Christ will be saved and not judged. This is the glorious gospel. And when Paul was done preaching something along the lines of what I just said, and when Paul had condemned the Jewish false prophet who sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith in verse 8, Luke simply tells us that the proconsul believed, for he was astonished at or stricken by what? Not by what had just happened. He saw what had happened, but Luke tells us that he was astonished at the teaching of of the Lord. It was the content of the message that struck him. Brothers and sisters, for those of us, especially who are Christians here this morning, we need to be reminded that belief is a gift of grace. We would not be accurate to think that the takeaway of this message is be like the proconsul, don't be like Elimus. Or be a seeker and hearer of God's word and don't oppose the kingdom of God in the world. Now, those statements are certainly true. We should be more like the proconsul than like Elimus in this passage. Elimus bad, proconsul good. But that's really not the way that Luke presents it. Really, he doesn't say Elimus bad, proconsul good. That's not Luke's point at all. In fact, I, I want to ask you, what's the difference between the proconsul and Elimus here? Well, Elimus is a hard-hearted, idolatrous, and biological descendant of Abraham who opposed the very God who called Abraham out of obscurity and covenantally made him the father of a nation or people. The proconsul is one among a multitude of Gentiles who were hard-hearted idolaters, completely separated from God and his covenant of grace, who had neither God's word nor God's visitation of prophets throughout the ages. So Elimus and the proconsul are a whole lot more alike uh, then they then they are different. And which of the two are blind or dark throughout the first 11 verses of our passage? Well, Elimus is blind to the message of the scriptures, which have been aimed to teach him since his childhood that he was dark in his understanding because he rejected it. The proconsul is blind to the scriptures entirely since he had no access to the only special revelation God had given to the world. And so too, his understanding was dark. And he's the very embodiment of ignorance. He doesn't even know that he doesn't know. 
until Paul tells him. So I don't think Luke is actually pointing to these obvious characters as the main characters of the passage at all. In fact, I think that the main and distinct character of our whole passage this morning is not Elimus, is not the proconsul, is not Saul Paul, and is not Barnabas. But rather, the main character of this whole passage is God the Holy Spirit. He's the one who sends preachers of the gospel of Christ far and wide. God the Holy Spirit is the one who judges and acts against those who oppose the gospel. And of course, God the Holy Spirit is the one who graciously opens blind eyes and illumines dark minds to the truth of the gospel, which they never would have known otherwise. And if you or I are beneficiaries of God's grace today, then we should praise and thank God for his gracious grace. He has loved us even though there is nothing about us worth loving. Just ask your spouse. He has committed himself to us even though we have never demonstrated an unwavering commitment to him. He has plucked us up from the field of darkness and touched our blind eyes and made us to behold beauty in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has done all of it, not because of anything in us, but rather to demonstrate that he is the God who judges and saves through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the God who triumphs over all opposition, including demonic. Even when that opposition is allied with the devil himself and all his demons. And he is the God who announces both his judgment and his salvation in the message of the gospel. God is the main character of this passage. My prayer is that we will be grateful hearers of the message of the gospel today. That we will join with those Christians who have gone before us to preach that same gospel far and wide. And that we, if we are beneficiaries of God's grace, would not look with arrogance. What a foolish and oxymoronic thing to do. To look with arrogance over other sinners who are lost as though there's something special in us but rather with gratitude and joy, praise the God of our salvation. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website www.fbcdiana.org.